Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with Democrats retaining control of the Senate and speculation amongst pundits that Trump is to blame for the failure of the red wave and Republican leaders are trying to move past Trump even though he is in firm control of the GOP and is bent on destroying his main rival. We'll look into how the MAGA cult dominates the GOP and will continue to do so as its leader announces he is running for president on Tuesday and his far-right followers in the House are likely to be the loudest voices in the next two years of congressional show trials and witch hunts. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. Then we'll examine the need for Democrats to get over MAGA and move forward with building a New Deal-style majority and speak with Samuel Moyne, the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books in his field of European intellectual history, human rights, history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History and Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. His latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And we will discuss his latest article at The Guardian, It's Time for the Democrats to Move Past Donald Trump. Then finally, we'll assess Putin and Russia's future with Mark Galeotti a scholar of Russian security affairs with a career spanning academia, government service and business. He heads the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy and is an honorary professor at University College London School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, as well as holding fellowships at RUSI, the Council on Geostrategy and the Institute for International Relations in Prague. He's the author of over 25 books, including The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, A Short History of Russia and the Weaponization of Everything, A Field Guide to the New Way of War, and we will discuss his latest book, Just Out, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, and his latest article at CNN, Putin Can Cling On to Power, But His Legend Is Dead. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you for having me back. Always good to chat with you. Well, thanks, Lincoln. And there's a lot of talk in Republican ranks about the idea that the absence or the failure of the red wave or the red tsunami to materialize is all on Donald Trump. And he owns it all. And you're hearing noises that he should go away. And Paul Ryan is saying the guy's a disaster, etc. But my sense is that Trump still controls the GOP. The number three person in the in the House Republicans, she just endorsed Trump for president. And he's going to announce on Tuesday. And he's starting to tear into Ron DeSantis. And he'll just tear him to pieces, won't he? I mean... In other words, do you think the pundits are getting this wrong, that Trump is a spent vessel? The short answer to that is yes, the pundits are getting this wrong. We have seen the pundits do this over and over again because they desperately, there's a segment that desperately wants to, first of all, they don't like Trump. So they just want to believe we're done with this. And they don't really want to reckon with the extent to which he has taken over the Republican Party. You know, MAGA equals the Republican Party today. And Donald Trump if he doesn't announce Tuesday, then I think we might explore what's going on there. But he still controls the party. 
he still comes to the table in any competitive primary with the base completely behind him. And frankly, not only completely behind him, but willing to intimidate and threaten other supporters, supporters of other candidates and other candidates. You know, Ron DeSantis, who is now, you know, the flavor of, of the month for the Republican Party, who uh, Donald Trump has nicknamed Ron DeSanctimonious. And like a giant orange fascist clock, Donald Trump is right twice a day. And, uh, you know, Ron, Ron DeSanctimonious is, is a great nickname for him. But DeSantis is completely not road tested. And he's not a natural, charismatic candidate. He's a kind of hard-pressing authoritarian. And in front of a crowd, you can easily see how Trump's attacks on DeSantis would land and how DeSantis will come off as stiff. And Republicans have over and over and over again paid a penalty within the party for going against Trump, and I don't see that changing. So what do you make of the of Murdoch's moves to distance himself and start supporting DeSantis and, uh, you know, Trumpy Dumpty and this right. kind of stuff that... I mean, first, and the, we, have to see, uh, we have to see how long this lasts, right? I mean, okay, so objectively, obviously, Trump has been a drag on the Republican Party beginning in 2018, right? We saw this in, particularly in 2020 when the rest of the party did fine except Trump. Here we saw most of the mo- Trump c- candidates most identify with Trump losing, with the exception of, among others, uh, J.D. Vance in Ohio. What I'm reminded of here is in the days following January 6th of 2021, where we saw powerful Republican individuals and institutions turn on Trump and then within a couple of weeks embrace him again when they saw what it was costing them. And I suspect that's where we're going now. There was a little DeSantis boomlet a few months ago, right before uh, the FBI went to Mar-a-Lago because Trump had stolen files from from the White House that, that were top secret. And the FBI going to Mar-a-Lago just moved everyone away from, from DeSantis again. So I think we're back in that cycle. And Trump is clearly in the driver's seat in the Republican Party. And to believe otherwise is just a fantasy. So on Tuesday, is he going to get a, an, another bump? Well, what will happen on Tuesday if he announces is that he then goes to leaders, to donors in the Republican Party and say, I'm the front runner. Are you going to endorse me? And then don't forget that in many, many states throughout the country, the Trump factions have taken over the state parties. These are, in some cases, the most rabid activists. These are not necessarily practical people you know, running regression analyses to see who's going to be the best candidate in the swing states in 2024. These are people committed to Donald Trump, and he will start getting early endorsements from them, and he could lock this up relatively early. I mean, the major caveat with Trump is always his health, right? This is not a young man who has anyone who takes a look at him and sees that his mental and physical health is suffering. But assuming he's healthy, it's going to be very, very hard to defeat him. And a bad election night for the Republican Party is not going to be enough. But this bad election is not over. And the concern amongst a lot of Republicans is that if he announces on Tuesday, it's going to impact the key race in uh, Georgia between Trump's guy, Herschel Walker, and Reverend Warnock. That's, now that the Democrats have picked up Nevada, they don't really need Georgia. And of course, that could impact the voting because uh, Republicans may have held their nose and voted for Herschel Walker because of their loyalty to the party and their need for the party to control the Senate. Well, now that that's over, maybe that will change the equation. Well, it, but It will like go ahead. change the equation. I agree with you. That saps the enthusiasm from the Republicans around a deeply flawed candidate who would not have been the nominee probably without Donald Trump, right? But the thing to remember about Trump is he doesn't care about the Republican Party. He doesn't care if he costs them a Senate seat. When is he, what he cares about is, is Donald Trump. And for Donald Trump, the smart move is to announce on Tuesday. So the fact that it might knock a few points off of Herschel Walker, he just doesn't care. That's not going to stop him from doing this. And already you're beginning to see a narrative emerge in the Republican Party that this isn't Trump's fault, right? You're going to, I mean, I, I would not be at all surprised if in the next week or two you're going to hear a prominent Republicans say the problem is, in so many words, that we weren't Trumpy enough. We nominated these milquetoast moderates in Senate races, in House races. And they lost. I, I would not be. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. That's what Trump. That's will start coming out because the loyalty to Trump is intense. It's, it's a phenomenon we don't really know and haven't really seen before in American politics. So it takes a lot to kind of process it. But look, a rational Republican Party, a party that was not dominated by Trump, 
would have, after he lost in 2020, have said, okay, you're done. Here's your gold watch or your silver watch, whatever, whatever it is. They didn't do that then. They're very unlikely to do that now when he has only consolidated institutionally his grip over the party. You know, Mitch McConnell is too smart to, he gets it, but Mitch McConnell doesn't influence Republicans anymore outside of the Senate or Republican caucus where he's trying to hold on. Well, that, he may be out of a job, though. I mean, it's the Trumpians who are attacking him now, like the Josh Hawleys and the Ted Cruz. And you've got the same phenomenon happening on the, on the House side, where they're likely to only have a majority of maybe five, which will mean that if Lauren Bobbitt s- survives, but it'll mean that the Maggie Taylor Greens and company will be dominating the House. And so are we in store for a Trumpian radical House, Senate, and a candidate for the executive branch? Well, in the House, your analysis is absolutely spot on. It will be a... a House leadership where Kevin McCarthy, who has basically sold his political soul to Trump, is trying to keep off the even more radical Trumpies. And people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan and people like that will become the face of Republican Party in the House, and they will be pushing in a more Trumpy direction all the time. In the Senate, it's a little different because a number of the people that were going to be the backbone of the effort to really push McConnell out as leader lost, right? Um including potentially Adam Laxalt, including Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker may lose. So the Senate, my sense is McConnell remains on as minority leader. Why he wants to do that is a different question, right? The smart move for McConnell now is to retire. Like he's done. What is he going to do? He's not going to see in 2024, get the Senate back. He's in his early 80s, just be done with this. So the Senate could be a moderating force, but it doesn't matter because the, the, the Republican, the most, the face of the Republican Party in Washington for the next two years until the Trump the nominee really emerges, but in governance is going to be the endless investigations and the investigational overreach of the Republican Party and the outrageous statements and the conspiracy mongering. And while that's good for Trump, it's not good for America, it's not good for democracy, and it's probably not even good for the Republican Party. So why is it then that this phenomenon exists. Is this because we've become an idiocracy? I mean, how could somebody like Trump, who's had a manifestly failed presidency, who's built a comeback based on lies, how could this be happening? I mean, you you keep asking yourself, in a rational world, this wouldn't be happening. So therefore, uh, do we have a kind of irrationality taking over the country? Or are we talking about what percentage of the country? You know, I'm a political scientist, right? So I'm I'm trying to gauges from a political perspective. And one, one thing I would say is that what we saw again this election is that the majority is not with Trump, right? The majority rejects MAGA, rejects Trumpism. But all it takes to destroy a country is a substantial minority, and they have that. But when you ask what the origins of this are, I'm, I, don't, I don't look to politics. I look, and just give me a second here to explain, I look to a post office that's about a 15-minute walk from the apartment where I grew up in San Francisco. And that post office was built after the earthquake in 1989. And before that, it was the abandoned home of what was the People's Temple. And as you know, in 1978, uh, the People's Temple by then had largely decamped to Guyana, the jungle, where the leader, uh, Jim Jones, you know, mass murdered, committed a mass murder of 800 people. People describe it as a suicide, but it really was a mass murder. And that cult mentality, that grip of turning Donald Trump into a deity, right? If you go to like a, a photo uh, archive website and do a search for Donald Trump, you'll see all these pictures of people who have photoshopped Donald Trump's face onto either drawings or pictures of like super muscular, macho looking guys, right? You see people saying things about Donald Trump that one would say not about a political leader, but about a religious leader or a deity. This is a culty phenomena that has, that has pivoted the Republican Party from being a right-wing party vaguely committed to ideas of democracy to being an authoritarian cult. And what it takes to break that fever is frankly beyond my ken. But that's what we're talking about here. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute for War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. 
We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the need for the Democrats to get over MAGA and move forward with building a New Deal-style majority. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming to the USA. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Samuel Moyne, who is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a professor of history at Yale University. He's written several books in his field of European intellectual history, human rights history, and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And he has an article at The Guardian, It's Time for the Democrats to Move Past Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Samuel Moyne. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it seems as, in a way that the Republicans are now having a debate over whether they're going to move past Donald Trump. So why do, why do you feel that the Democrats need to do it too? Well, I I think that, you know, that Donald Trump has been the looming figure in American political life since really he won so unexpectedly. And he's burrowed, I think, deep in the psyche of at least politically aware Americans. Uh, and it's kind of remarkable that, as you point out, um, you know, Republicans are, are able to ditch him first. Uh, now, of course, they're worried that he may be the wrong kind of standard bearer when they have performed so poorly in the elections. I would actually go further back and just recall that um, there were central Republicans, you know, uh, who were always, you know, very dubious about Trump, uh, even when he was in power, not just the never Trump movement, but Mitch McConnell, and even by the end, his own vice president, because along with McConnell, Mike Pence wa was really the instrumental one in making sure that Trump didn't, uh, you know, uh, become president the second time uh, as as he wanted illegally. Democrats have been focusing since 2016, understandably, just on the shock that their fellow Americans could pick such a charlatan. Uh, and they've, in a way, looked everywhere but their own party. Now, of course, that makes sense. Um, but uh, I, I, I've been trying to insist that we can only overcome the, the shock of seeing Trump voted for by millions of our fellow citizens twice more the second time than the first by looking at the Democratic Party's failures, too, over decades, which included... Uh, endless war and economic neoliberalism. And the question is, what will it take for either party to break for the, from those two things and attract a supermajority of Americans enough to govern the country? So from that perspective, this, this last midterm election is really like another gridlock election. It just shows that neither party is offering the political vision to transcend gridlock. And if the Democrats, as I hope, are going to be the party to get us out of this situation, they have to you know, lose their obsession with Trump just as much as the Republicans do. Well, it does seem, though, and it seems encouraging that in this last election, the Democrats, particularly uh, young Democratic voters, uh, really did stand up for democracy. And given the very thin majority that the Republicans will have in the House and obviously lost the Senate, won't that mean that there'll be even more turmoil and gridlock? I mean, there's no way that people like Lauren Bobbitt, assuming she survives a narrow election, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, they don't even understand compromise. So won't it be likely that this will be a train wreck, this Republican Congress, and particularly if they impeach Biden, which I think will fall flat? Uh, I, I think so. Um, you know, you're, you're totally right that there are certainly 
big differences between the last two years when, you know, even though the the votes were close, Democrats controlled, you know, both the presidency and the two houses of Congress. And then this coming two years when it seems as if uh, and we've all thought for days that the Republicans would at least control the House. Now, if they control the Senate, which now seems extremely unlikely, that will be even worse. And so there will be a big difference, uh, even if the House is controlled by the Republicans, and uh, not least because no laws can pass except, you know, with extreme difficulty just to keep the government running. Um, and uh, and and yet I, I don't I don't think that we should just, you know, hold the bar for the Democrats at whether they can achieve a, 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 the narrowest of victories in a way like they did in 2020 um, or that they can stave off, you know, uh, the, the kind of defeat they expected from a red wave in 2022. Of course, it's better that they did reduce uh, the the 2022 elections to a red trickle instead of a red wave, but they did lose seats in the House. Uh, and so to me, it's actually like the situation between 2020 and 2022 and in the next two years will be more similar than different. Um, and the, I think the central question is how should the Democratic Party reinvent itself so it can get a bigger majority than it had the last two years? and pass uh, even more transformative legislation, especially uh, when it comes to, you know, the suffering middle class that, you know, put Donald Trump in power uh, and came near doing so a second time two years ago. So it does seem, though, that the Democrats, you mentioned the slim majority in, in the House, that the Republicans eked out most of those actual pickups, a lot of those pickups came from Florida, which is entirely due to gerrymandering. And of course, it was the failure of the Democrats to get voting rights and voting laws passed in the Senate because of Manchin and Sinema's obsession with the filibuster. <laughs> Historians like yourself may well be looking at that in decades to come. So what can the Democrats do about the anti-majoritarian mechanisms in our system, and of course, extraordinary amounts of gerrymandering happened in this last election that most of the coverage has been about the red wave, but not a lot of focus on the trickle that happened was largely due to their gerrymandering. I, I think it's a great question. You know, it, 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 is, it is true that's a significant phenomenon and it reflects a, a failure on the part of the Democrats to legislate with their razor thin majority in, in, when it comes to you know saving democracy, if that's the the framework we're going to use, and you know you could go beyond that and talk about the Electoral Count Act, since so far they've failed to pass the revision of that, which you know could be essential uh, in in just fixing a f the flawed regime for how Americans pick their president. But I I guess I would say two things first. When he was elected, Joe Biden was routinely compared to Franklin Roosevelt. And, you know, I talk a bit about this in the op-ed because I think we should remember that uh, Roosevelt commanded uh, both houses of Congress, you know, election after election and at levels of over 70 percent of, of, of the House um, in 1932, in 1934, in 1936, and he gained seats each time. Uh, and of course, that meant that he could legislate to save the country. Now, of course, you're right that it, for not just on these topics, the kind of democratic uh, reforms, you know, that you, your question raised, but also on other topics like even better versions of you know congressional spending for welfare state policy or the Women's Health Protection Act for national abortion rights. With a razor thin majority in the last two years, there simply was no way to proceed unless the Democrats eliminated the filibuster in the Senate, which I think Biden didn't want to do. 
um, it wasn't just, you know, these, we, we, we constantly returned to these two senators who had to be kept in the coalition and were placated in various ways. But Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, I think that we need to think a lot more about the role of the Supreme Court. And Joe Biden did commission a whole study of possible reforms to the Supreme Court. But those two would require the any of them would require an elimination of the filibuster. So I think we should, you know, use this kind of experience of gridlock we've had, not just, you know, in the coming two years, but in a way in the last two years with such a narrowly divided Congress and Senate and with all of the consequences of that to think about, well, what should the Democrats, you know, be trying to achieve? And I think it it's clear that we're in a moment of, um, you know, just very close contests between these two parties, um, no matter who's leading them. And that suggests that the only way out is some kind of realignment uh, and trying to figure out how to cobble together a new coalition. I think we, you know, I would prefer to see a transracial working class majority coalition, but that requires a different vision than the Democrats have had in the past decades and including in the past two years. So this may be more sociological than political question, Samuel Moyne, but it seems as if there are two kinds of people in the world, those that earn and deserve attention and those that extort attention. And terrorists and Donald Trump are in the latter category. And after all, Trump was given $5 billion worth of free advertising by the mainstream media simply because he demands attention. And social media, of course, exacerbates that. And in many ways, you know, social media has created a, a clickbait culture. So is there a possibility that we can learn as a culture, as a society, not to be manipulated? I think so. And that's a, a really good question. I would note, just to return to, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats and their relation to Donald Trump. Well, there's a very serious discussion among Republicans right now about whether to abandon Donald Trump. And even though they have Fox News and they have even even you know more disturbing forms of mass media not to mention twitter now in the hands of a much more conservative owner um, they are able to take their distance on donald trump and have a significant debate about whether to abandon him and switch to ron DeSantis in 2024 or someone else there's right now a very i think intense discussion of how far Trump is to blame for Republican failures uh, to take not just the House, but the Senate uh, in a red wave in these elections. So maybe that suggests that uh, it's not so much people's uh, inability to uh, look away from Donald Trump, but that the Republicans understand that it's strategic and they can look away when he's a loser. Well, what about Democrats? I, I am a little worried that on the liberal left side of the spectrum, we cultivated an obsession with Donald Trump and we can blame media and we can blame the kinds of people in the world who uh, are able to demand attention, but we gave it. Uh, and if we continue to give it and just worry about what he represented as a, a fascist on the make, then we fail to think about pushing the Democrats to be popular enough to keep that kind of figure from gaining as many votes as he has in the last couple of presidential elections. Sure, in a way, power is what you give to others. But in terms of this new Congress, which will be dominated by, you know, the Matt Gates, as the maybe Lauren Bobbitt, but certainly Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan as the head of the Judiciary Committee, you can imagine what that's going to be like. So is there an expectation, at least it would seem so, that they just might exhaust this attention grabbing and accelerate our maturity? I mean, we don't teach media literacy, and we, and we really should. It's a clear and present danger, particularly right. as we move into the era of deep fakes. But is it possible that the Republicans could simply 
and Trump himself has already somewhat exhausted our politics through his antics. So do you think that the new House could also exhaust us through their antics? I think so. I mean, it, 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 I think a lot depends on the, the audience. Uh, and, you know, you, you and I, you know, and, and your listeners will remember the endless uh, hearings that prior Republican Congresses have had, you know, the Benghazi hearings and so many others. And, you know, there's always this open question whether you dignify those antics with your attention or whether you go to the American people and offer a political alternative. Because you can say that these, the, you know, the, these charlatans are making hay out of nothing in the absence of having answers for what the voters really care about, which is the collapse of the American dream, the explosion of inequality, the endlessness and fecklessness of our wars in spite of, you know, military spending that could be used in some other way. And I think that it, to me, I mean, as, as just one voter, it makes much more sense to me when politicians give me a constructive uh, vision of what the country could be like if we made the reforms we need rather than uh, just uh, have endless impeachments. Because after all, that's what we did. We focused not on why Trump won and what we could do to address dissatisfied Americans, but we obsessed around Robert Mueller and his report in hopes that there would be some simple extrication from the situation. We lived through two impeachments, failed impeachments, uh, and we allowed ourselves to be sucked into the media circus around them. And then there was the January 6th committee. And so all of these are understandable responses, but there are sides version of what you're talking about, where we focus on things that we think will get a lot of attention and change people's minds, but then the election shows that they don't seem to work. And so when do we learn our lesson that we you know, can both ourselves and the way we uh, you know, think about what's appealing to Americans and in responding to the Matt Gateses of the world, uh, focus elsewhere and pr try to provide something that R Roosevelt did, which was a sense that American government can do much more than it has to rectify the problems that I think ordinary Americans across racial lines find you know, so troubling in the United States today. Well, Samuel Moyne, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Samuel Moyne, who's a Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He's written several books in his fields of European intellectual history, human rights, history and law, including The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World. And his latest book is Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War. And he has an article at The Guardian, It's Time for the Democrats to Move Past Donald Trump. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of Putin and Russia's future as Putin clings to power, but his legend is dead. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mark Galliotti, who's a scholar of Russian security affairs with a career spanning academia, government service, and business. He heads the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy and is an honorary professor at the University College of London's School of Slavonic and East European Studies, as well as holding fellowships with RUSI, the Council on Geostrategy, and the Institute for International Relations in Prague. 
And he's the author of over 25 books, including The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, A Short History of Russia, and The Weaponization of Everything, A Field Guide to the New Way of War. His latest book just out is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And he has an article at CNN, Putin can cling to power, but his legend is dead. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mark Galliotti. Good to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us, Mark, and you end your article at CNN with this brief note. Putin, his military machine is broken, his country's economy is scarred, is so scarred that it will take years to recover his reputation as a geopolitical mastermind in tatters. Putin, the man, may cling to power for years, but Putin, the legend, is dead. Is that also to say, Mark, that the possibility of democracy in Russia is dead and it will continue to be a corrupt petro state run by the security services? It's not dead. There are still all kinds of different positive indications are bubbling away. I mean, clearly Russians are not happy with this status quo, but they are indeed oppressed by an increasingly totalitarian regime. My view is that, look, under Putin, of course, there can and will be no reform. Those people who will follow him are also likely kleptocrats, but of a rather different sort. They're not as consumed with this idea that Russia has to be a great power and that somehow the West is trying to steal that status from it. So I, I think that they are much more likely to be kind of you know, conventional kleptocrats, probably will bring in a certain degree of rule of law, and maybe the next political generation will be much more able to bring in democracy. I'm still unfashionably optimistic about Russia's long-term trajectory, however horrific today is clearly looking. Well, so many talented young Russians have left, particularly you know the draft-age young men, and I'm sure Putin is not sorry to see them go. One of the paradoxes that I see is that Putin arguably is a kind of moderating force within the pantheon of Russian politics. And the people on his right, like Prigozhin and others, and Patrushev, etc., they would be even more nationalistic and right-wing than Putin. Is that your analysis too? I mean, up to now, yes, though, to be perfectly honest, uh, as as Putin himself, shall we say, becomes more radicalized, the gap between them is shrinking. More to the point, I think it's worth saying that, first of all, these really extreme, most hawkish of hawks, they have very, very little constituency within the, the elite, let alone the country as a whole. I mean, they're important because basically Putin listens to them rather than anything else. So without Putin, they, they lack that, that same degree of political traction. But secondly, what's really interesting has been, and it's again, it's a, it's a perverse development, is the, the rise of, shall we say, a kind of patriotic ultranationalist opposition to Putin. People who perhaps didn't really have a problem with the idea of invading Ukraine, but did have a problem with it being done so badly, and are horrified by the incompetence and the corruption that has been laid bare, and in many ways also just the amateurism. And so they're saying, look, our big problem is precisely because we are an authoritarian regime in which there's no checks and balances. And bizarrely, these people who are, I would say, made, made deeply unpleasant ultranationalists, but their response is to say that this is why we need independent courts and the rule of law to stop someone like, like Putin getting to power. So what's happening is in, in some ways all, all the old bases of politics in Russia are beginning to be disrupted. And it's very hard to predict exactly where it goes from here. Well, that is a paradox, isn't it? That reform could come from the far nationalist right. It could. It could. I mean, again, I wouldn't want to push it, push it too far. But the interesting thing is that at the moment you've got, you know, those few remaining supporters of Alexei Navalny who are not in prison or fled the country, the, the reformist leader. What they want to see is a parliamentary democracy in Russia. And at the same time, you have people amongst the ultranationalists who also want a parliamentary democracy in Russia. And in, in many ways, it's because both of them think that actually if there was a real vote, they would win. But that's that's the essence of it. I mean, parliamentary democracy is something or any kind of democracy is something in which any extreme can feel that it will have a chance. So, you know, the mill bloggers, as they're called, and Prigozhin mm -hmm. and Hadirov, the Chechen warlord, and the nationalists on the media who've been given some space and been given a voice, 
to voice these complaints. Is that reaching the point now, since Pagosin and Hadirov are attacking the military itself, the, the Ministry of Defense, is there a possibility that this split within the Russian military could, this fissure could explode into, a, I don't know, a collapse of the military or some kind of internal strife? We're a long way from that yet. I mean, yes, there are definite tensions, but these tensions are ones that we see right across the Russian system. You know, what you've got to realize is the, the political system under Putin was in many ways designed to be unstable. It was designed for there to be constant disagreements between individuals, factions and institutions, because that gave Putin the power of divide and rule. That gave Putin the opportunity to be the ultimate decider who could actually resolve all these disputes. The thing is, these days we've seen Putin, presumably largely because he's obsessed with the war, but in any way, basically not doing that aspect of his job. And therefore, we're seeing increasing tensions emerging. And there, there's regional governors, there's all kinds of other figures who are expressing that. Now, obviously, we particularly see the most bizarre, toxic and extreme representatives of that, people like Kadyrov, people like Prigozhin. But they are just the, the particularly sort of unpleasant tip of the iceberg for something that is much broader. And I don't think this is, means that necessarily likely to see imminently any kind of sort of collapse and ruptures within, within it's the, the military or the security apparatus or the country as a whole. But it does say something about increasing brittleness of this system. And more than anything else, it means that I think it's got less resilience if as and when some serious crisis emerges, you know, the kind of black swan events that one can never really predict what they're going to be, but you know that at some point there will be one. And that's when I think we will really see the, the tensions within the system coming to a head. But do you think Putin understands why he's, he's losing in Ukraine? It's because he presides over a hollow, corrupt mafia state and that all Putin offers is gangster government? I very much doubt he's got that degree of self-knowledge or is willing to show that. I mean, look, you know, he obviously he's aware that, that he's losing and there must be a degree of frustration at the degree to which often this is about incompetence and corruption and so forth. But I'm given that, in a way, the root cause of this debacle is Putin. Putin's own catastrophic misunderstanding of what sort of a country Ukraine was. Indeed, I mean, as far as he's concerned, he didn't think Ukraine was a country. And his assumption that he could just simply dictate a military strategy that was completely at odds with what was actually needed in these circumstances. You know, he's certainly not going to be willing to believe that. So instead, it's all NATO's fault. It's all because of CIA and MI6 subversion. It's all because of the fact that the West is trying to use Ukraine as a proxy. I think, you know, this is it. He, he will fall back on, on all these easy answers. And I'm sure the people around him will be encouraging him that because no one wants to run the risk that if it starts to become a hunt for scapegoats, they and their institution might be targeted. So I think everyone's going to, going to want to encourage him in, into the, these easy and deceptive answers. So has he always been afflicted then with the KGB mindset, the Vladimir Protivnik, the main enemy? Is that his problem, that he blames everything on the CIA? Uh, well, I, I should actually mention, I, I feel sort of com compelled to mention, it's also MI6. The, the, the Russians course. do have this extraordinary mix of, of both Anglophilia, they're very, very keen on Britain, but they also regard London as, as their most subtle uh, of antagonists, which you know, always bring, brings a little warm glow, even though it might be behind why in June I was actually officially barred from ever re-entering Russia. Um, so, no, I, I think that there is an element of that. And, you know, it, it, it's a KGB thing and it's a wider sort of Soviet Communist Party thing about regarding America as, as the sort of source of your woes. But it's also a nationalist thing. It's that sense, look, you know, this is a man who really can't come to terms with the fact that Russia, the Russian Federation, is no longer one of the great poles around which the world revolves. And if you are going to try and demonstrate that, in fact, one way or the other, Russia is indeed a great power, you obviously need to measure yourself against the longest yardstick available, and that's the United States.
So, you know, it's not just that they think that America is behind all, all their troubles, though they do, and they, they're absolutely sure that Ukraine Zelensky is really just a, an actor mouthing the lines that the CIA writes for him. But at the same time, they want to try and make America treat Russia as an equal. That has been a crucial thing that we've seen going on for years now. So... It's always been a security state, though, hasn't it, throughout the Soviet period, particularly during Brezhnev's long and decrepit tenure, the KGB, you know, Andropov was running the country behind the scenes. Then Yeltsin came, the security services sort of went back into the shadows a little bit, then they came back with Putin. So is he leading the mob or the mob leading him? What is his sort of role here? Because he was never a very distinguished intelligence officer and uh, one of the I think the reasons he fired his chief of staff Sergei Ivanov was that Ivanov was a general and often reminded Putin that I was a KGB general and you were a lieutenant colonel. Yeah I, th- I mean this is the interesting thing you're absolutely right that that in, in, the, in the KGB Putin's career was dis- distinctly undistinguished shall we say but on the other hand um, you know I, th- I think that that he has regarded it now as part of his his personal mythology mythology that he may well himself believe about exactly the sort of the power of the subtle wily and, and, and ruthless security state but the point is, and it's interesting that you put it in this historical context, you know, I very much see Putin as the last gasp homo sovieticus. You know, he's so much a product of the Soviet era, not just because he was educated and he had his early career experiences there and joined the KGB then and so forth. But it's interesting if you look at the people around him who are pretty much all in the same 68 to 74 year old age band. Most of them are also ex-KGB. But another characteristic that almost all of them share is they did not come from established Communist Party elite families. They were often the first one in their family to make it into that charmed circle. And this is it. They, you know, they, they thought they had it made. They thought they knew the way the world was going to be. And then the Soviet Union collapsed around them. And for people like Putin, they really haven't ever, I would suggest, truly come to terms with that. And Interestingly, as we see Russia moving from authoritarianism towards totalitarianism, in many ways it is becoming a kind of 21st century Brezhnevism 2.0. Increasing state control, increasing control over the population, increasing dependence upon the political police um, to to, to manage every aspect of society with a ridiculous share of resources being put into into war fighting. This is almost like he's going back to his comfort zone. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S. and its relationship. And it was interesting to note that Biden made a kind of remark that isn't it a coincidence that the Russians pull out of Kherson after the results of the midterm elections came in and Russian state TV, their their, um, show 60 Minutes, they were all counting on uh, the red wave, the Republicans. They thought that was their (laughs) salvation in terms of Ukraine, that... Kevin McCarthy would pull the plug on funding the Ukraine war. So that's probably unlikely to happen if the Republicans only end up with a majority of maybe five in the House. What's happening on our side? It's astounding to think that the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan would be in a situation where they would want Putin to win in Ukraine. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not sure. And again, look, I'm, I'm although I'm currently based temporarily in, in, in D.C., I'm in no ways an expert on American politics. The thing that strikes me is that despite some of the sound and fury one, one is getting from certain Republican quarters, I mean, in the main, I was not when I was talking to American officials who were actually having to sort of manage this policy and clearly had a certain degree of trepidation about potential impact of the midterms. But Broadly speaking, they didn't really think that much was, was going to change. They, they, there was a, a sense that there is a, a clear consensus amongst the majority on both sides that Ukraine still needs to be supported. And the fact that the Russians may well have, or certainly some, some, some of the more vocal elements of the Russian state, may well have been putting their faith in, in, in a red wave, I think more than anything else shows how they don't really understand American politics rather than anything else. But under Trump, there was obviously an effort to get closer to Russia and to the point where many people suspect that we don't quite know what their ties are. 
And when you put together Trump and Devin Nunez and Cash Patel and that whole cadre, how much has the Republican Party been influenced by Putin's apparent influence over people like Trump, who, by the way, is going to be announcing, uh, I think on Tuesday, that he's running for president again? Again, I think that there is a risk of, of, of making too much of this. Look, from, from Trump's point of view, Trump clearly never met an authoritarian dictator whom he didn't like. And it's not just Putin. It's it's a whole caste of rogues and tyrants um, that, that, that he would be perfectly happy to cuddle up to. The Russians, of course, were going to do what they could to exploit this to the fullest. But on the other hand, the Russians were always very, very clear that they, they could not actually put any faith in Trump, that Trump would throw anyone and anything under the bus to protect himself if, if need be. And the irony is that if you actually look at policy under Trump, to a considerable extent, because Congress in effect took, o- took it over, but policy towards Russia under Trump was actually tougher than it had been at any previous point. He certainly was not willing to actually take any chances in order to help help Russia. So I think that, that while the Russians were, were, were again absolutely looking at the potential for a red wave, it's not so much that they imagine that in any way America is going to go soft on Russia. It's more that what they want is disruption. What they want to see is an American polity that is as divided, as distracted, as disrupted as possible with so many different factions and fractions and rivalries and issues of debate that in some ways the policymaking process becomes paralyzed. And to that end, they will frankly support anyone they can find who they think will further this aim rather than they think they have a particular choice agent in place. Sure, but uh, Donald Trump is the perfect uh, instrument of division. He's polarized this country and will continue to do so. So given how much Putin has weaponized money, and he's supposed to be the richest man in the world, maybe Mohammed bin Salman is richer, but still both MBS and Putin do use money and, and influence here in the United States and in the UK. So how much is the amount of money that him and the oligarchs have stolen from the state deployed abroad? I mean, the, the honest answer is these days very little. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, the byproducts of, of the Ukraine war precisely has been uh, with astonishing speed and unity. I, mean, I don't think anyone really anticipated just how quick and effective the, the West would be on this. But uh, the, the, the way that sanctions, both in terms of personal sanctions on individuals, but also locking down so many of the financial routes, you know, the speed with which that has been done has essentially deprived Russia and oligarchs of much of, if not most of their opportunities to actually use this money. And secondly, it has also made Russian money toxic. And if we now look at the kind of political operations that are being done with with Russian funds, they have to use what's so-called chornaya kasa, black account monies. In other words, stuff, something that has no Moscow fingerprints on it. And that essentially has to be raised in the West. And so we've seen a few cases of, for example, organized crime groups being in effect taxed and told, look, you know, to allow you to continue your operations without cracking down on you, you had better put a certain amount of euros into this particular bank account or whatever else. But this is, you know, this is tens of thousands of euros or dollars worth. This is the kind of money which is helpful if you want to keep some fringe media figure who has a website that helps spread disinformation in business. But it's not the kind of thing that can sort of deploy the sort of political weight that we were worried about in the past. I mean, again, in this respect, it's yet another way in which Putin, through this this foolhardy war in Ukraine, has actually closed down his own options for spreading influence in the West. So just in closing then, Mark Aliotti, given that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs just mentioned the other day that the Russians have suffered over 100,000 casualties, we don't know what the casualties on the Ukrainian side are, but they're probably pretty high as well. What's likely to happen here? I know it's reading the tea leaves, but Russia's now pulled out of her song and they're defending the possible line of, of a Ukrainian move on Crimea, which I think would be even more provocative, and I'm not sure what, what kind of influence NATO and the, and the U.S. has over Ukraine in, in restraining them. So do you see any kind of end game here, any kind of diplomatic settlement? 
Unfortunately, in terms of diplomatic settlement, no, not really. I mean, to be honest, the the Russians haven't yet suffered the kind of catastrophic defeat that it would take to get Putin to be willing to make the kind of, as he would see it, concessions, which are the, the minimum perfectly reasonable requirement of, of Ukraine. So at the moment, there's just no room for negotiations. We'll see if things happen over the winter season, where the weather is likely to make offensive operations much less uh, of, of a sort of possibility. But I think we can, we can, what we can see is in some ways what Putin's new strategy is, in that he's looking to, to drag the war out. He's evacuated Kherson because that was frankly militarily indefensible. He's hoping that with his mobilized uh, reservists, he's got 300,000 of them now, that he can throw a certain number in, frankly, as, as cannon fodder. They're taking horrific losses just to try and stop the Ukrainians from making any further serious gains now. And that come spring, he will have dug defensive, well, not he, but his people will have dug defensive lines that he'll have 150,000 of these mobilized reservists now Again, not very good troops with very bad equipment, but nonetheless troops in the line. And he will basically be saying, look, I can drag this out as long as you want. Are you in Ukraine happy to keep fighting this war? And perhaps more importantly, are you in the West happy to keep bankrolling it? Remember, you know, we are paying billions every month in euros, pounds and dollars, not just in terms of military materiel to keep the Ukrainians fighting, but also huge amounts of financial resources to keep the Ukrainian on life, economy on life support. And Putin's hope, and let's be honest, it's his last hope, and so he's clutching at it like a, a drowning man, is precisely that if he can drag it out, we in the West will begin to lose our will, capacity and unity to support Ukraine. Because that's his only real chance of being able to drag even a very partial victory out of this debacle. But to be honest, I imagine that we will see the war rolling into next year, not necessarily the year after. Well, Mark Galliotti, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Mark Galliotti, a scholar of Russian security affairs with a career spanning academia, government service and business. He heads the Mayak Intelligence Consultancy and is an honorary professor at University College London School of Slavonic and East European Studies, as well as holding fellowships at RUSI, the Council on Geostrategy and the Institute for International Relations in Prague. He's the author of over 25 books, including The Vori, Russia's Super Mafia, a Short History of Russia and the Weaponization of Everything, a Field Guide to the New Way of War. And his latest book just out is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And he has an article at CNN, Putin can cling to power, but his legend is dead. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine